Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode is sponsored by Try Vegan, a vegan meal home delivery service that is nutritious and delicious and makes your life easier. Based out of New Jersey, they deliver throughout the Northeast. Check out more details on their website, tryveganmealprep.com. And you can get 25% off your first order with the promo code LITYOGA. So go vegan. Welcome to Friday with Friends. I have my dear friend Zoe Weil with me today. Zoe is the co-founder and president of the Institute for Humane Education. A humane educator since 1985, Zoe has been giving people the tools to make humane and sustainable choices and solve entrenched challenges through her classes, workshops, and training programs. We discuss her training programs, her life's journey into being a humane educator, and about her solutionary project. Please enjoy my conversation with Zoe. Welcome to Friday with Friends. I have a dear friend with me, Zoe Weil. So glad to have you on today, Zoe. Oh, it's so great to be here. Thank you for having me, Laura. So Zoe and I, I want to give a little background. Zoe and I probably met, well, I know when we met, it would have been 18 years ago. No, it would have been 15, 16 years ago. I'm, I'm doing it based on my children because I know that my husband, Mark, who's been on the podcast before, we've been vegan for almost 20 years now and got very involved in activism and some of the activism we were involved in was frustrating because we got to see how the legislative process is going with our friend Jean Bauer from Farm Sanctuary, which is, you know, listening to farmers justify castrating without anesthesia. And, you know, you just sit there and think, how is this even possible? So we would walk out of these meetings and look at Jean and be like, what, how, how do you handle, listen to this nonsense that is, that is justifying harm on animals? And he said, you know, you probably are better off if you want to take your activism and do it in an educational way. You really should check out Zoe Weil, the Institute for Humane Education. And, you know, I think within a day, Mark had Googled and learned all about you and probably contacted you and signed up for your master's program. And so we came up for the graduate week that you have on site when Jonah was three months old. And we came up to Maine, and that's when I met you for the first time. So that was 16 years ago. And of course, we were blown away with you. You have done 
just relentless, passionate work for everyone, not just animals, people, the environment, civil and human rights. So I'd love for you to just give us a little background. Like, how did you get to where you are now? In your growing up, what were the things that felt unfair and unjust to you? And you just had this calling to specifically pick a profession that would spread the word through education, through activism? Well, growing up, I was passionate about animals. So you know, anytime, I grew up in Manhattan and there are a lot of dogs who are walked on the streets of Manhattan and I would stop for every one of them. And I loved animals. I had no idea that animals were as mistreated as they were. In high school, when I was studying the American slave trade and studying the Holocaust, I was frankly stunned at how recent the atrocities were in my parents' lifetime, and not slavery, but Jim Crow, and the fact that when I was born, it was illegal in many states for black and white people to get married. Just the level of human cruelty was shocking to me when I learned about it. But I didn't grow up in an activist household. So I didn't grow up thinking that there was anything I could do about these things. And then I went to college and graduate school, and I started to realize, well, actually, I can do something. And I read Peter Singer's Animal Liberation, and I learned about you know, the depth of animal cruelty. I became a feminist and became more aware that I could make a difference. I became a vegetarian, realizing that at least I could stop participating in certain level of, of suffering and cruelty. And then when I was in graduate school, I found a program that offered week-long courses to middle and high school students. And I pitched five courses to the director of the program. And one was on animal issues and one was on environmental issues. And the animal issues course was actually the second most popular of the 60 courses offered that summer because lots of children love animals. But my course was about what was happening to animals. And my goal was to inspire the students to want to make a difference. Interestingly, you mentioned Jean Bauer. Jean and I met then too. And I brought the students to Farm Sanctuary when it was a rented space in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Anyway, um, one of the students in that first course that I taught, he went home and he made his own homemade leaflets. And this was in 1986. So he made his own handmade leaflets, like handwritten. And he came back into class the next day. He wanted to hand them out. So he stood on a Philadelphia street corner during the lunch hour that we had, and he handed out his leaflets. He'd become an activist overnight. He'd learned about something. He wanted to make a difference. And interestingly, it was around that same time that I 
also was doing some leafleting and letter writing to my legislators and the kinds of things you were talking about, you know, reaching out to legislators. And, you know, maybe I'd get a response and mostly it would not be the response I wanted. And when I was leafleting, you know, people would take my leaflets and then they'd often drop them on the street, you know, a hundred feet away. And I would just feel so angry and frustrated. And, you know, not only do they not care, but then they're littering. And I just realized if that was the only form of activism out there to make a difference, I wasn't going to last very long. But this teaching thing, well, that was different. Because I watched as these kids just were transformed over the course of a week. And not only that one boy I mentioned um, who made his own handwritten leaflets, but a couple of the kids who were in that class went on to form a Philadelphia area-wide student group. And they were doing all sorts of activism. They much preferred the kind of traditional activism than I preferred it. But I realized that summer that I could do this for my life. And interestingly, one of the boys who was in that class, we were still in touch. He actually is a supporter of the Institute for Humane Education now. And he has been working as an HIV AIDS activist for the mayor of New York for decades now. And I was giving a talk in New York with Jane Goodall, which was, you know, an incredible honor to be on the same stage as Jane Goodall. And she's been my hero since I was a child. And I invited him to come. I hadn't seen him in 18 years. So I'm introducing him to people after the talk. And I said, this is David. It was in the first humane education class I ever taught. And before I could even finish my sentence, he interjected, that course changed my life. And I realized it changed my life as well because I realized I could do this for my career, for my profession. And so I ended up creating a Philadelphia area-wide humane education program, going into schools, reaching about 10,000 kids a year, did that for about seven years, and then realized, you know what, this can't be just something where some speaker comes in and does a one-off presentation. This has to be embedded in the entire school system. And so I co-founded the Institute for Humane Education 25 years ago this month. And the goal was to train people to be humane educators, to help teachers to infuse their curricula with relevant ethical issues around human rights and animal protection and environmental sustainability, and ultimately to transform the very purpose of schooling so that we educate what we call a generation of solutionaries. And solutionaries are people who can identify unjust, unsustainable, and inhumane systems and then develop solutions that are healthy and humane and compassionate and equitable for everyone, for people, animals, and the environment. That's what I've been doing ever since. First of all, congratulations, 25 years. That's incredible. But what I find so uplifting and empowering is the education piece. And speaking of Jane Goodall, I'm going to read one of her quotes, which is so funny that you mentioned her because she is obviously, I think, a heroine to all of us. But she says, only if we understand, we can care. Only if we care, we will help. And only if we help, we shall be saved. I have that up on one of my walls. And 
that is what education is doing. It is giving the information so that people can actually understand the issues at hand, so that they can see the injustices that are there. The facts, you know, that there's some facts that people don't want to know about what's going on in the world, global warming, about, you know, black people injustices. We've now, this last year has been a huge unveiling that was just already, if we had just opened our eyes and really studied it, this has been there for hundreds, you know, hundreds of years. So when you were contemplating how to build a curriculum and knowing that there is such that there's so many issues, how did you begin? Like, how did you decide what you were going to tackle? Because there are a lot of issues to tackle. That's true. And I had never been a single issue person. I don't even understand what that would feel like to only care. Let's say you you care about animals, but you only care about dogs and cats, or you you care about all animals, but you don't really care about the environment, or you care about human rights, but you don't care about other species or the ecosystems that sustain life. I just don't understand that. To me, all of these issues are interconnected. So one of the goals that we have was to create the first graduate programs in humane education that linked social justice, animal protection, and environmental sustainability. And and when I created the curriculum for it, each course was almost like a whole graduate program in itself. I had to keep whittling it down. And, you know, when your husband, Mark, went through our program, there was a lot more reading than there is today. It was very hard to get through the program because how... Obviously, human rights could be a grad program, and then uh, there could be a subset of human rights that's its own grad program. So the goal is to introduce students to the range of these issues, but more importantly, to help people to be good critical thinkers, systems thinkers, strategic thinkers, and creative thinkers, which is what comprises solutionary thinking so that we can keep learning about other issues, and then bring a solutionary lens to solving issues. And that perspective, that lens, sort of undergirds everything we do at the Institute for Humane Education. So whether a program is short, like we just launched a solutionary micro-credential program for teachers, it's a 30-hour program. And it's designed to introduce participants to what it means to be a solutionary, to allow them to practice being a solutionary themselves and develop this solutionary thinking, and then to to apply this solutionary process to whoever it is they're going to teach. So all of that in 30 hours. But it can be done in 30 hours because if we understand this process and if we practice this process, then we apply it to everything. And I'll just put in a plug for the Solutionary Micro-Credential Program since I'm talking about it. This program is offered uh, every month. It starts the first Tuesday of every month with an optional Zoom meeting. It's all done online. And there's an instructor. You can have one-on-one time. And so if anybody's interested, they can go to our website, humaneeducation.org, and 
look for the Solutionary Micro-Credential Program and register. Summer is a great time for teachers and for all of us to learn to be solutionaries. I was going to say, I think this is really important for everyone who's listening, that this is obviously great for teachers, but this is great for anyone. This is for all of us who are sitting back and disturbed by the many issues. The best thing we can do is get involved. The best thing we can do is become educated so that, like Jane Goodall said, when we care, we'll, we'll then will then help. And then when we help, then these issues can be addressed and hopefully solved. And that empowers us because we can actually put our hearts into action. And let me give one example that I'm thinking of, and I'd love to hear one of your own, of humane education in action. My kids went to their early years, they went to a Quaker school. Quaker schools are known for, you know, it's based on the, it was a friend school. It's very much loving, sharing, hearing ideas, various ideologies. But even in this school, in their first and second grade, they have a big project for the kids where they start to learn about numbers, percentages, all those type of things. And they do that by having a farm and having animals. And so they have to purchase the animals for a certain price. And then they have to figure out when they then sell those animals to be slaughtered, what do they need to make? How do they need to make the profit on that? And they've been doing this for decades. So we come in with our two vegans and we're like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, what? Did, you know, but no one, it didn't dawn on anybody that this was a very weird, perverse thing to be teaching kids, of course, because it is so acceptable, it is normalized. And so we came into the to the head of the school and said, this is, you know, first of all, our kids are vegan, but we don't love this. But aren't there better ways to do this? How about like vegetables? Like, and the, the process of growing a vegetable and how many, you know, considering there's going to be, you know, weather and all these systems, you could bring in so much more into it. Nobody's getting hurt. They're still learning and they're learning in a much more humane way. And I mean, we took this on for over a year and it was finally, changed by the time our our son came around three years later. But it was just, it was, this is classic in all the studies we do. There's all these subliminal messages that are normalized and we could provide an education that actually, and this is what you're doing, that has solutions, that has resolutions, that has a better world picture. So that's an example. uh, And I think, honestly, if we hadn't gone through if we, Mark, hadn't gone through the humane education with you, we would have been like, oh, that's kind of weird. Too bad you have to go through that, kid, you know? But we wouldn't have said, no, there's a better way. Can you give an example of how, for those of you who might not really fully understand how humane education is brought into the school for these solutionary type, can you give an example of how something would be taught with that lens? Sure. Well, so. I want to say a few things about the lens first and what it means to have a solutionary lens. So when you bring a solutionary lens to any issue, it means that you see that whatever problem it is can be solved. And you focus on on working together collaboratively with others to solve it. And you take on the perspectives of all the stakeholders involved. And a solutionary lens is really the corrective 
to the polarization that we are experiencing in our society right now. It requires that we actually talk to and communicate with and hear from all stakeholders, including those who are benefiting from the very problems that we're talking about. So to give you an example, I'm just going to talk about what's happening in San Mateo County, California. So this is the county between San Francisco and Palo Alto. It's a county that serves 113,000 students in 23 school districts. And that county has made our solutionary approach, the philosophy and framework for the entire county. And so the Office of Education has been, all their professional development has been training teachers to bring this solutionary approach into their classrooms. And the teachers who go through the professional development, and there have been hundreds of them now, they then take this solutionary philosophy and framework and they create their solutionary units for their students. And it's going to be different for every teacher because some are teaching elementary, some are teaching middle school, some are teaching high school, some might be teaching biology, some language arts, some social studies. And so there's no, there's no one way. There's multiple ways. It's really a matter of a teacher believing that this approach is valuable, learning how to use it, and then integrating it into whatever they're teaching. So one teacher who was a teaching fellow this past year and during his capstone, there was um, a day where all of the teachers who had gone through this fellowship program were sharing their capstone projects. And there were a hundred of them. And so, you know, in a couple hours, I could only sit in on a couple of them. But one of the ones that I was sitting in on was this one language arts teacher who he wanted to look at food systems and he integrated that into a language arts curriculum and the students are doing research and the students actually said, we really want to focus on meat, not just food systems in general. So then they dove down even more deeply just into the meat industry. And if you think about what is the goal of language arts, it's to enable students to be able to think critically and creatively and be good communicators, develop their literacy and all the ways that, that we define that term literacy. So you can learn about factory farming and animal exploitation in the context of gaining literacy skills. So a math teacher would do it entirely differently. You gave a really great example of a Quaker school using percentages and numbers, and you can just do that through a humane education lens. And when you think about what's really relevant and meaningful to students, it's those things that are going to impact their life. It's being able to address issues that they're passionate about and gain numeracy skills, gain literacy skills, gain scientific skills, gain thinking skills around what they care about. And one of the things, you know, that's been so tragic about the pandemic is that there are millions of children who have just vanished from school during the past year. That's, that's the really awful thing that's happened. The positive thing that's happened is that we've had to rethink education. And my hope is that 
as we hopefully get all of these kids back to school, we can rethink education in this entirely different way. Now, I think that the purpose of education should be to educate young people to be solutionaries, just as simple as that. And right now, the mission of the United States Department of Education is to prepare students for global competitiveness. Now, personally, I think that that is is a very short-sighted mission. And our children deserve so much more than learning to compete in the global marketplace. They they deserve to have the, the skills to address the issues of our time that are potentially catastrophic. Now, it's really important, and I hope people listening will really feel this deeply. It is really important to recognize that a peaceful, just, and sustainable world is possible. We, many of us, and often many children, feel a lot of despair, a lot of hopelessness. Climate change really is an existential threat, and we haven't been paying attention to it in ways that have shifted the relentless increase in temperature. I mean, I learned about climate change in the 1970s in science class. It's a lot of years since then. So it's easy to feel hopeless. But it's so important to recognize the the trajectory that has been positive. So as I mentioned before, when I was born, it was illegal in many states for black and white people to get married. The air and the water in many cities was dirtier than it is today. About half of all people in the world lived in extreme poverty. Today, that number is less than 10%. Now, 10% is still too high. Racism and structural racism, it still persists. And yet, we have moved in a positive direction. And if we can If we can get from 50% of people living in extreme poverty to 10% in my lifetime, we can get from 10% to zero. The one thing that has gotten worse, of course, is climate change. And we must address that. And a solutionary approach in schools is our best hope. Because what we need is for young people to graduate and no matter what careers they pursue, to perceive themselves as solutionaries responsible for creating just and humane and sustainable systems, no matter what profession they have. Amen. The other thing I would say about a solutionary approach is that it really instills in kids and in adults who go through it, a sense of confidence and compassion coupled so that in this very polarized world we live in, you don't feel like you have to like take a side. You know, it's not like, it's that you can have the conversation and that's a skill. And I think a solutionary mindset absolutely leads to that. I've seen it in you and and the people that you've taught, how you can be in, in a crowd or with one person, you've talked about it in your CrossFit setting, that are have different political views, have different cultural views, and you can talk to them and impact them through your compassion 
not through lecturing or proselytizing. And that is, I think, an essential skill that is lacking. Nobody's listening to one another. Nobody's, you know, it's like, again, this like need to take your stance and this is the way. And that is not going to turn the dial, people. (laughs) We have got to come together, even if we have different approaches, different philosophies. And don't you think, I would love for you to speak to that and how you have, I've, again, I've seen it firsthand, how you've been able to instill it in your own approach, but in the way that you teach the solutionary approach, that conversations need to be had, hard ones, ones with people who have different views. What happens with that? Like, how did you manifest that? (laughs) Well, you know, either or thinking is really typical. I would like to say among our species, we manage to polarize almost everything, right? You know, even in our language, right? We have right and wrong, black and white, night and day. There's more than night and day. There's dawn, there's twilight, there's dusk. It's not to say that there are never times to take sides or to perceive something as an either or. To say that that should never happen would be its own either or. But more often than not, we just go into camps. I mean, even the fact that in our country, we have Republicans and Democrats. I mean, I remember even from a young age thinking, that's weird. Why are there just two ways of thinking? And then all these various issues are dumped into one bucket or another bucket. It doesn't really make sense. And, you know, that's the the sort of uh, political system we have right now, and it is so entrenched. And we are seeing, at least in my lifetime, I don't feel like I've ever lived in such polarized times. And yet, it's almost, it's antithetical to actually coming up with solutions, is this side-taking and this either-or thinking. And solutionary thinking And that solutionary lens that I mentioned, it's like it's turning it upside down. And so let's say you are in a conversation with somebody who has very, very different beliefs than you, but you both care about a similar problem. And, you know, that problem could be any problem, right? It could be a problem in your own neighborhood, right? You know, your local rivers polluted. Well, that's not something that only one side or another side cares about. You know, most people don't want their local river to be polluted. And so when you come with a solutionary lens, you say, okay, here's the problem. Here's our polluted river. The next thing you're going to do is you are going to study the causes of that pollution. You're going to get to the bottom of it. And you're, you can do that separately or collaboratively, and you can come and you can discuss it. You can see all of the systems that have led to that polluted river. When you understand the causes, and sometimes those causes are systemic causes, sometimes they're deeply rooted causes like, you know, laziness or, you know, we don't want to spend the money to deal with something because we're greedy or, you know, they're deep-seated psychological forces that lead to us to create systems. But once we get a big picture of that, then we can say, okay, so where where are some leverage points where if we made a change, we could solve this problem? Now, again, that's 
that doesn't lend itself to either or thinking. That lends itself to solutionary thinking. And it's amazing how if you bring this kind of thinking that we have this problem that we both care about, how do we solve it? It leads to a softening of those polarizing edges. Mm-hmm. And I honestly believe that if this solutionary thinking and action and process were taught to young people in schools, we would solve all these different problems that we face. And I'm particularly, I've been thinking a lot about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, because of what's been happening. And one of the most heartbreaking impacts of it, of course, is on children. And one of the most neglected but powerful way to move forward on solving this perennial, awful conflict is by educating young people differently. And it's such a heartbreaking thing to continue to see conflicts that could be solved if we came in with a solutionary approach. Yeah, that's so true. So what is your goal? I mean, obviously you would love this to be in all the schools. You offer this solutionary micro-credentialing program. You also offer a graduate program. Can you talk a little bit about that and how your, what your graduates are going off and doing? Sure. So our graduate programs, and we offer an MED degree, an MA, an EDD, a doctorate in education, and a graduate certificate. And these are offered online through our affiliation with Antioch University, which is a fabulous partner. I mean, Antioch is a leader in progressive education. And so it's a really exciting um, suite of graduate offering, graduate program offerings. And our students do all sorts of things. I mean, some are classroom teachers, some start nonprofits. Many of them actually work at farm sanctuaries and they're the education directors. And, you know, people are, are writing books and they're starting businesses with this solutionary lens. And for those who might be interested, again, just go to our website, humaneeducation.org and look at the graduate programs and schedule an appointment with our amazing director, Mary Pat Champeau, if you want to learn more. But it, it's one of those graduate programs where people describe it as life-changing. And, you know, people go in because they want a graduate degree and they want to study these interconnected issues of human rights and environmental preservation and animal protection through an educational lens, but they are utterly transformed themselves. And that's been really beautiful to see. And for those who are interested, we have three entry points. So we have a August 15th deadline for applications for the fall, and then students can also start in January or in May every year. Well, I can attest it's life-changing for us. Mark having gone through it and, you know, to this day, he's, he's not doing it in any uh, formal way, but in every way in our lives, in the choices we've made, because I, it changes your own brain coding. You know, it really does. And that's what's so magical is that no matter what you do with it, you are changed, like you said, and your choices are all based on that beautiful critical thinking 
compassionate view. And I think who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want that? So any of you that are interested, whether you're going to apply it in any kind of strategic way or just for your own selves, look it up. It has been transformative for our life, all the tweets we've made, our, you know, building a house, on and on and on. Seriously, I can't thank you enough for that. I lastly really want to talk about your books. We have all your books. First of all, my favorite is Above All, Be Kind, because I think that there are so many choices we can make. And if we have that kind of mantra, like just indelibly written in our heart and in our vocal cords that we think, you know what? When there's that choice to make, above all, be kind. Because kindness is the, is the greatest power. You know, it, people hold back on it. And in fact, by being kind, it empowers them, but it empowers the people around them. Because it really just kind of eliminates any of the crossfire, the friction, if you're kind. So I love that one. I'm going to give a big plug for that. But I know that you are having your new book. It's not a new book. It's it's a revised edition to one of your most powerful books, The World Becomes What We Teach. Can you speak a little bit about what is in there? We know the title. It probably has a lot. And I, I love to, again, this... Like, I think the message is clear. If we teach kids at a young age the values and the critical thinking to really live in alignment with those values, the world will be better. There is no doubt. There are so many things that we want our kids to be, but the teachings are not necessarily consistent with that. Same when we were kids, you know, like be kind to animals. Oh, make sure you eat all your chicken. You need your protein. It's like there's so many conflicting messages. And I think if we can be consistent across that. So please speak about this book because it's beautiful. Thank you. And I want to say thank you also for mentioning Above All Be Kind and the power of kindness. Kindness is one of those words, it sounds so soft and it, it's so powerful because I define kindness as more than niceness. And also what you just said about be kind to animals, but finish your chicken you know, kindness, understanding what it means to be kind in a globalized world where one's everyday choices, what one eats, what one wears, the electronics one uses, the transportation, all of the things, clothes that we buy, they touch people all over the globe, the environment, other species, and we have no idea about the impacts of just going to the store and buying a t-shirt. No idea. And so to truly be kind, we need to learn about the effects of our choices. And what we're going to learn is likely going to be unnerving because most of us want to be kind. And then we discover, oh, my everyday choices are causing so much harm and suffering and cruelty and injustice. And the reality is that we can't buy our way out of those impacts. We can to some degree. So you and I are both vegan. I've been vegan for 32 years now. And that's a choice where every time I sit down to eat, I'm doing less harm. I, I'm trying to practice kindness, not only toward animals, but toward the environment, because it's a much less environmentally damaging diet. But 
you and I right now, we're communicating through computers. And we cannot choose a computer that doesn't have ores that were mined in unsustainable ways and a computer that doesn't have sweatshop labor, maybe even slave labor involved in it. We just don't have the same ability as with our diets to choose a computer that is sustainable, just, and humane. So what that means is that we need to change those systems. And in order to change those systems, we need to understand those systems. And that's where the world becomes what we teach comes in. And people might be thinking, oh, it's an education book. I'm not a teacher. It's not relevant for me. The truth is that we, every one of us, needs to be invested in the educational system. It is the fundamental underlying system of every other societal system. We want a better energy system. We want a better food system. We want a sustainable or just criminal justice system, which is not just right now. We want sustainable and just building systems, infrastructure systems. If we want those things, we need to change our education system because it, it is at the root of all of the others. And so this book is very short. It's about 100 pages long. I'm really excited about the revised version, which comes out this month, because it's addressing some of the recent issues of our time, racial injustice, the pandemic. It's also giving examples of where solutionary learning is taking root in schools. And it's really meant to be sort of a combination of a manifesto, a vision, and practical ways to go about transforming our educational system. And it's subtitled Educating a Generation of Solutionaries. And that's what we have to do. Please go check that out. That'll be in the show notes for sure. You know, you and Jane Goodall are so similar because you have hope. You know what I mean? And I think hope is elusive for a lot of people. And, you know, you can look at all the woes and still see the light and still see the possibility. And, and so as we end, I would love for you to give us like five kind of humane daily tips that people can implement. I know that might be a tough one, but you know, when we're feeling like, God, there's nothing we can do. Yep. What are five easy, maybe not easy, but you know, soon to be easy, humane tips of the day? Well, I'm going to give, first of all, thanks for comparing me to Jane Goodall. (laughs) (laughs) You want to say something about hope as well, which is I am not always hopeful. It's not like I wake up every morning. I'm like full of hope. There are days when I don't feel it. Um, But um, here's the thing. I don't consider, I I think hope is important. If, If you're hopeless all the time, it's very hard to stay motivated. But you don't have to be hopeful all the time either. As David Orr once said, hope is a verb with its sleeves rolled up. Mm. The singer, songwriter, she said, action is the antidote to despair. And for me, there are a few things that come into play around hope. One is that whether I feel it or not, not going to let it, how I feel, change how I act. I still have to look in the mirror every day. I want to have respect for the person who looks back at me. And I know that by by working with other people 
to create positive change, my hope will be restored. That's what happens when we act. And that actually leads me to answer your other question. Rather than give you like five things, I'm going to give you one really powerful thing, I hope. And that is to practice what I call the three I's of inquiry, introspection, and integrity. And what do I mean by that? So if in our daily lives, we are willing to inquire about the impacts of our choices, the impacts of our thinking and action, and then introspect. And and by inquire, I mean like do some research. You know, you're curious like, oh, is my diet causing harm and suffering? Do some research, learn about it. You know, if I'm going to go shopping, what's the impact of that? Do some research. Don't, you don't have to go overboard. You don't have to be overwhelmed. Just make this a part of how you think that you're going to inquire and then introspect, which just means self-reflect on what you've learned. And when you self-reflect and you have this new knowledge, you now have the opportunity to live with greater integrity. Integrity just means you're walking your talk. You're living according to your values. If each of us were to make choices, that are based on those three eyes, then the world would get better, you know, overnight because we would be on this journey together. We would be willing to learn from each other. We would be on the path to being solutionaries. So I invite people, I invite people to practice the three eyes. I love that. I love that. Well, I am so grateful and honored to have you on here. You are just a leader in this world. And what you're doing is having a ripple impact in, in such a way I'm sure you're aware of, but you just keep showing up and I'm just grateful that you that you exist for me personally as a friend, but also for all the work that needs to be done. Well, thank you. I feel the same way about you and your wonderful husband and your beautiful children. Well, thank you, Zoe. And for all of you, make sure you check out all of Zoe's info in our show notes and go become a solutionary. Everybody can, and we need to. And as always, I'm pulling for you.